Romans 3, 5 through 20. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Not, no, not at all. For we have already charged that, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Thank you, Dan. Um, let's uh, start by uh, opening with a word of prayer. Uh, Lord, as has been said a couple of times this morning, um, this has really been an upside down week. So much going on. Uh, a good couple of weeks have gone and, and uh, our nation seems to just be in an uproar. It's not just our nation. It's, it's all across the world. And Lord, in this turmoil and this upset, I pray that you would um, further your purpose and that in the, the midst of the chaos and all the, the um, competing demands and, and um, the confusion, Lord, I, I know that um, you are sovereign over all these things. You are accomplishing your purposes in the midst of all of these things. And your purposes are just so multitude, we can't even guess what you're, you're doing um, <clears throat> because there are so many, thing happen so many things happening. But Lord, I pray that at the end of this, um, this chaos, this upset, this, these protests. Lord, I pray that um, America specifically might be better with uh, racial reconciliation, that we would find ourselves uh, one people under God. And uh, Lord, that we might set aside um, the differences that have been dividing us over the last 10 or 20 years and begin to find common purposes as one nation. So Lord, would you bring about healing and peace from that? And uh, Lord, along those lines and in, in, uh, in to those ends, I, I pray for the investigation into Robert Fuller's death, a young black man found hung from a tree. Um, Lord, it just, the imagery of it just brings us back to the, the lynchings and the, the hatred and how horrible things were uh, before the civil rights movement. And uh, Lord, uh, those, those feelings are not changed by laws. They're not changed because, um, <clears throat> because there have been, um, uh, requirements put on the books that, that we treat people equal, Lord. There's still hatred in heart. And so, Lord, I pray for 
our uh, law enforcement folks as they investigate this death. Lord, if this is a lynching, would you lead them to the people who are responsible for it? And I pray that they would be punished. And Lord, if this was a tragic suicide, I pray that the the evidence for that would be abundantly clear that it wouldn't appear to be uh, the police sweeping another uh, black death under the rug. So uh, Father, the whole situation is just a powder keg. And I pray the Lord that, um, that you would grant wisdom to our leaders and to our, uh, our law enforcement folks to handle this appropriately and, and uh, properly. And uh, Lord, I pray for um, Robert's family who are mourning his death uh, those who are missing him, Lord, would you um, bring them to yourself through the, the unfortunate death of this young man and uh, have mercy on them, Lord. Show them that you care even about those things, even though sometimes it doesn't seem like it. It doesn't feel like it. Lord, you do, and you are paying attention. And Father, I also want to rejoice uh, that uh, Ron uh, Lafoon is home, and I pray, Lord, that you would um, affect great healing for Ron while he's there, Lord. That would be a chance for him to regain his strength and, uh, and to feel better. Thank you that he is not um, isolated in a, a hospital or an assisted care center um, where people can't get to him. And so, Lord, uh, we, we pray that, um, that our brother Ron would be strengthened, um, not just in the inner man, but at least there, but also physically. And uh, we're grateful that his, his safe return and uh, Father, I, I pray for our elders as we discuss again um, plans for reopening and dates for reopening and, and procedures for reopening. Lord, would you grant us wisdom and care so that we do this in a way that doesn't uh, put people at risk of contracting uh, um, an illness that can be um, very vicious and sometimes fatal, but Lord, that we would care for each other and uh, take appropriate precautions. Um, Lord, help us to do that, not out of fear, but Lord, out of wisdom and, and concern for the body of Christ and love for you. And Lord, as we now look to um, Romans 3 and some uh, difficult passages, um, Father, I pray that you would be with us, that uh, our hearts would be open to what you have to say. Lord, would you temper my words to be in line with your intentions? And uh, Lord, apply this, this word richly and deeply for us this morning, we ask. And we can't do it without you. So Holy Spirit, please come and work in us. And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. So um, we're kind of hopping into the middle of something called a diatribe. Um, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8 uh, are what is uh, considered uh, in classical rhetoric, a diatribe. Now, when we think of diatribe, we think of somebody going on a railing, ranting, rambling, um, uh, you know, argument, just, just, you know, yelling and screaming. But a more careful understanding of the, the roots of the word diatribe was, it was the idea that um, a higher truth could be reached through argumentation between disagreeing parties. So the idea was an argument, and sometimes it was emotional, but the, the hope was through these disagreements, agreements through this dialogue, we can come to the truth. And that's kind of what Paul is doing is he's uh, in uh, one through eight. He, what he's kind of doing is he's asking these questions and answering these questions. It's not that there's somebody standing before him arguing. Um, he, he's answer, asking and answering. And I kind of get the hint from today that these maybe have been questions that he's heard before. So we're going to kind of hop into the middle of this diatribe. Uh, again, it was broken in half continuing thought, but I think it's helpful because it ties the two together and leads us into the next piece. So that's, uh, that's our approach to this. Um, 
we're looking at, at five through eight. And um, when I was doing some research on this, John Piper's sermon on this section is titled, Why Does God Inspire Hard Texts? Um, he had kind of the week before that, he had addressed the, the whole diatribe as a, as a unit. And then he, he gets to this part and he kind of focuses and he did a whole sermon on why God would inspire hard text. Because he said he didn't understand this text. He said that he had spent time working on this, that he had uh, you know, spent the week working on it and he couldn't come to the, the answer of what it was all about. That uh, it was something he'd been studying for 25 years. And um, when I was looking through the commentaries, one of the commentators said, on a casual reading, these verses do not appear to be particularly difficult, but knotty problems lie under the surface. And uh, so what, and I agree because I was kind of twisted around the, um, the uh, tree about this all week, just kind of trying to figure out how do we, what is it, what's his main point here, what's going on? Uh, so what I'm going to promise to do at five through eight is not go below the surface because if we go there, we get into big problems. Um, what I'm going to try to do is just kind of go over it. If it doesn't answer all your questions or if it leaves you more confused at the end, I apologize. Um, it's kind of the nature of this, this text, and uh, it, it is kind of hard to fully unpack, but I, I think I have kind of a surface answer that should be satisfactory. So Paul begins by saying, if our unrighteousness serves to show God's righteousness, uh, that's, that's where he starts. So he started last week with the question, um, what if some are unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? So you see this kind of a parallel between uh, unfaithfulness and unrighteousness, faithfulness and righteousness and that kind of thing. So what they're asking is, um, does what we do wrong make God look good because he doesn't judge us immediately? So if, remember, he's talking to the Jews, he's addressing the Jews, and, and he's been saying that um, everybody needs to be salvation. Um, the 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 uh, pagan who is just indulging themselves, yeah, they need to be saved. The moralist needs to be saved. The Jew needs to be saved. And so the Jew, he kind of goes to, well, the Jew might be saying, but I'm in covenant with God. What about circumcision? I'm, I have this covenant relationship with God. And so that's what he's going to answer here is he's going to talk about, well, what are the limits of that Mosaic covenant? And then the next section, what we're going to see is the universality of sin and then finally, we'll get to a hope of deliverance, um, because what this section is, is it is the finishing, the culmination of Paul's uh, discussion of who needs to be saved. Um, it kind of comes to the end of that. And so that's about where it goes, is, is who needs to be saved. And he's going to bring that to a, a climactic uh, conclusion here. So he's looking to the Jews, and he's saying, but we count on circumcision. We say we have circumcision. So... Um, God is bound by covenant to be faithful to us. If our unrighteousness shows the righteousness of God, or if unfaithfulness, does that nullify the, the faithfulness of God? And the answer to those is, well, it doesn't. But then they go in a wrong direction, because the next question they say is, is God unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? So if what we're doing makes God look good, then would he judge us for doing it? In other words, if what we're doing wrong furthers his purpose to show his glory to the world, is it right for him to lay judgment on us, to, to put judgment on our people? Because we're, we're making him look better. So looking at like the history of the Jewish people, there's this long history of them being unfaithful to God and God enduring and enduring and enduring, and then sending them off to exile. And then after a while saying, now I'll bring you back. And so they could be saying, well, you know, isn't that what 
God wants is, is for this covenant relationship to show how merciful and great he is. So why would he judge us? They're, they're relying on their covenant relationship with God to say, well, he won't do that. He won't bring that upon us. So will God judge the Jews? Um, will he do that um, it, it just temporary, temp, temporally in the world, or will he do that eschatologically in eternity? Um, so that's kind of the question. And it's, it appears that some people thought um, that one of the implications of God's grace would be that they could do that. They could just be rotten and, and God's glory would abound because that's where he goes next. He says, if by my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, then why am I being condemned as a sinner? Uh, so that's kind of the thought here is he's still addressing that issue of circumcision and our, and our covenant relationship with God. And does that excuse us? So that's the question he sets up is, is if the Jews who are God's covenant people are under covenant with God and their misbehavior makes God look better, then why would he judge them? Do they need to be saved or are they saved because they're in covenant with God? Um, so that's kind of where he goes with it. And his response is kind of surprising. It's by no means um, is God unjust, unrighteous um, to, uh, if, if we're unrighteous um, and our unrighteousness shows God's righteousness, um, is God unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Is he, is, would it be wrong for him to judge us? Do you see where he's going? Is if we're bad and God is righteous and God judges people who are bad, but he's in covenant, then wouldn't it be bad for him to judge us? And his answer is, by no means. That we would expect. No, that wouldn't make God unrighteous. Nothing can make God unrighteous. But where he goes with the rest of it is a little bit more surprising because he says, for then how could God judge the world? And so the picture there is, if God refuses to judge Israel's unrighteousness, then he is disqualified from judging the entire world. That's, that's a nutshell, kind of just a basic idea that we're going to unpack a little bit, but it, it, it is a bigger question than it appears. So if he's going to judge sin, he's going to judge sin in his own people, he's going to judge sin in the world. Is sin sin with God's people or is it not? Well, we have the sacrifices and we have the temple and we have the circumcision and all that. And, and this appears to be an argument you heard before because he says, um, uh, as some sinfully say, or some, some scandalous, or uh, not scandalous, as some um, slanderously charge. So this may be something as Paul was going to synagogues, as he's, you know, what we saw in Acts and preaching this message, um, then it appears that people would kind of distort what he was saying. It was slanderous what he was saying. Um, if through my lies, truth abounds to his glory, then why am I being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? So that is really a, a perversion, a misunderstanding of God's grace. It is to say, well, if God's grace to me means that he is not going to judge me, if he is not going to condemn me, then I should do more evil because that would show that his grace is even more glorious. And that is a perversion. It's a distortion of it. It's something that Paul will come back to in a little bit. So I don't want to go too deep on it here. <coughs> but what he says is that is what some people slanderously charge us with saying. And then he flips the thing right on him and he says their condemnation is just. So it's, it's not that God can't judge anybody. So where he's, let's, let's back up and figure out where we're at here, because there's a lot has been going on. Again, what Paul's point in the book of Romans is, 
his summary statement is one, uh, chapter 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. It is for salvation to everyone who believes. And so right now we're in this idea of everyone needing salvation. And so he's been unpacking that, and he, he started with the easy case. You look at the pagans out there doing all these terrible things. Yeah, that's, that's an easy one. And then he moved to the moralist, and the moralist could be a Jew or it could be a, a, an upright Gentile looking and going, no, man, those are horrible things. They shouldn't be doing that. Well, his response to both of those, are, well, don't you do them? And, and his case was from Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, um, if you look on a woman to lust after her, you're guilty of, of, um, of sexual immorality. So he, he's kind of goes through the moralist and says, yeah, that doesn't work. And then the, the, the ultimate moralist, the Jews saying, but not only are, do we have God's law, but we have his covenant and all these things. And so he can't judge us because of that. He's, he's in an agreement with us. Um, he won't do that to us. And so what he, Paul says is to say that is slander against what we're saying and your condemnation is just. In other words, yeah, it is okay that God judges you. So what you're seeing is, is the, the limitation of the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant. It can only take you so far. It puts you in this position. Um, as a matter of fact, remember how chapter three began? He said, uh, what advantage has the Jew or what value has circumcision? Um, so he, had, he began with that question. And his response was, well, much in every way. He's going to come back and say that again. Um, but what he's, he's saying is it has certain advantages but one of them is not necessarily covenantal eternal salvation. You can't get there from here because what the, the covenant gave you was law. And, and that's going to show how unfaithful you were and how righteous God would be to judge you. Um, so the, the law is no pre protection for people. And really, that's where he's going to go next. And so after he's, he's shown us the limit of the Mosaic law, that would be kind of the ultimate um, what could be done in the world by, by law. Now he's going to show us the universality of sin, how it, it really is for everyone. And this is his capstone. This is the, the hammer falling. This is his major point on how everybody, need, everybody needs to be saved. And so in verse 9, he starts with, well, what then? Are the Jews any better off? And, and that's kind of what I picked up from that previous section was that, that diatribe, that questioning back and forth, is they're relying on circumcision. They're relying on covenant. So then he asks the question, well, what, are Jews any better off? And his answer is no, not at all. Now, that sounds like it contradicts 3.1, because there he said, um, what benefit is the Jew? Much in every way. And now he says, are they better off? Well, no, not at all. Um, why is that? Well, the, the problem is that um, the Jews have been unfaithful. And, and, and when, he, when he says that, he says, look, they have advantage in that they have been given the oracles of God. That is an advantage to them, but they didn't employ it. They didn't use it. They didn't follow what those oracles did. And so they're actually no better off than the Gentiles. As a matter of fact, in a way, they're probably worse off because they had the law. Um, now, this idea of the problem, the quote-unquote problem of unfaithful Jews, Paul is going to come back to, and he's going to really unpack it in chapters 9 through 11. Um, but right now he just kind of introduces it. So where he goes is he starts with a list of those oracles. Um, he, he brings together a handful of scriptures to prove everybody is under sin. Um, so he says, he starts quoting, as it is written, so this is coming from scripture, the oracles of God, 
none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become useless, no one does good, not even one. And, and the list goes on. The list comes almost, well, mostly from the Psalms. He's picking up different Psalms, but he also quotes Jeremiah and Isaiah, and there's a proverb in there too. And so what he's doing is Paul is, is gathering up these bits of scripture that talk about how everybody is sinful. Now, what, um, what this is quoting is scripture. Does that mean this only applies to the Jews? Uh, well, no, because everyone, and, and when we get to the end, we'll see how he applies it to everyone, but he is making this universal. Everyone, no one understands. And, and to show how this kind of ties into the Gentiles as well is the scriptures are pronouncing something true that is happening across the world. No one understands. Well, chapter 1, verse 21, he said, they became futile in their thinking and their, darkened, or their hearts, foolish hearts were darkened. So there's everyone. Chapter 1, that was, that was primarily about the Gentiles. But he's using scripture to show, yeah, the Gentiles, they don't understand. And neither do the Jews. They, they don't get it. Um, the next thing he says is no one seeks after God. Looking back to 121, which again was referring to the Gentiles, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So that's how the Gentiles were, but this is quoted to the Jews too. So this everyone really does affect everyone. No one does good, not even one. And that's 128. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind that they might do what ought not to be done. So there you have it. You have the Jews and the Gentiles now brought together scriptures authenticating this, and it goes on and on and on. Here's the problem. The problem is the trajectory of the sin, the direction of the sin. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. And isn't that what we saw back in chapter one is, is God has made himself known in general in creation. And they, they saw creation and they refused to give God thanks they refused to honor him as God and instead made images of, of men and creeping things and, and critters. And they worshiped that instead. And so the trajectory here, the problem with this is the trajectory is not toward God, but it's away from God. It is not seeking God. It's not doing what he wants. It's not going in the direction he goes. So I, I know for me personally, this, this kind of gave me problems at one point. No one does good, not even one. No one, absolutely no one does good, not even one. That just doesn't seem, um, that doesn't seem to be accurate. Let me show you something here. For example, came across this story this morning. This is at a protest uh, in London. And this protest, this is a, a Black Lives Matter protester. And he's carrying this white man um, out of the fray into the police. And what this is, is this man is, is a, um, a far-right activist. In, in Great Britain, they were called skinheads when I was there. Um, Neo-Nazis, white supremacists, that kind of stuff. This man had been beaten up in the, uh, in the, the uh, protests that were going on. And so this, this man picks him up and carried him out of the fray, out of the fight, and brought him to the police where he could be taken care of. Isn't that a good thing? It, to, to look to your enemy, to see your enemy, someone you're standing in, in direct opposition to, to see him injured, uh, because, let me see if I can find this other picture. Um, there he is. He's, he's bleeding profusely from the head. He's in the middle of a fight, and he's getting beaten up. And this man picks him up and carries him out. Isn't that a good thing? Isn't that um, um, some form of good? 
And this, is, this raises the question of the problem of uh, what's called altruism. Um, aren't people potentially doing good things? Um, what if a, a man saw a little child, an unbeliever, a rank unbeliever, somebody who denied the existence of God, saw a child wander into traffic, ran it at the peril of his own, or at the risk of his own life, grabbed that child and saved her? Isn't that a good thing? And, and the answer to that is, well, yes, that is a good thing to do. The, the, the Black Lives Matter man carrying someone who's the exact opposite of him, picking him up and carrying him out of the fray to deliver him to the police so that he might be cared for, that's a good thing to do, and we should be doing good things. But the problem is, that's why I said this, this is about the trajectory. It's not toward God. It can be good, but it's not toward God. So that's what Paul had said at the beginning. When the Gentiles ultimately do or don't do what the law says, their conscience bugs them or it authenticates them, and they become a law unto themselves. That's the idea here, is that it is possible to do externally good things. The problem is they are not meritorious before God. So let me try to unpack that a little bit. I think an illustration that I thought of that I hope works is imagine that there was a master architect um, someone who is known, well known for his buildings, and, and he designs this new building that is going to really showcase this is what I'm capable of. This is the kind of design work that I can do. This is what can be built, and, and it's supposed to be this just beautiful edifice and wonderful thing. And so he hires a bunch of workmen, and the workmen come in and they start putting it together. And one of the carpenters, um, as he's standing there, he picks up a nail and bam, hits it on, on a two by four and it goes right into the stud. The head is exactly flush with a two by four. There's no dimple. It is just exactly in the center of the stud. Everything is right. He pulls out a Sharpie and puts his initials over top of that. Man, did I nail that. That was a great nail driving event. And he takes other people and shows them, look at that nail that went in there. Well, a couple of weeks later, you know, the, or a couple of months later, or a year later, the building is finished and, and it's done. And when that man then comes to show people, the, comes to, to look at the building, he's going to remember that one spot where I put the perfect nail in. I did it exactly right. Did he accomplish what he was hired to do? He was hired to build this building, and he did put that nail in. Did he accomplish what the purpose of that building was, which was to highlight the talent, the skills, the mastery of the architect who designed it? No, he brought attention to himself. And so this idea that no one does good, not even one, it, it, the problem is there's enough of us in the good that we do. Uh, there's enough of our putting our signature over top of the good thing that we did uh, because it might draw attention to us. It might draw you know, glory to us. So if we go back to the protest, the, the gentleman who carried the far right person out of the, um, out of the fray, why did he do that? Um, we're not sure. It might have been out of genuine humanitarian compassion is, look, I, I'm a Black, life, back, Black Lives Matters protester because I think all human life is, is sacred and worthy and it, we're all created in God's image. And so I just want Black people to be treated more fairly. And this man is standing across from me saying that, that we're not worthy of it, but he's been injured and he's an image bearer. And so I'm going to rescue him and haul him out of this before he gets killed. This could damage an image bearer of God. That might be one reason. Another reason is he might see that the man has been struck and now he's weakened and he feels, hey, now I can manage him, picks him up and hauls him to the police so the police can haul him away. 
Um, it, not out of love for his enemy, but just out of, you know, I, I want our side to win. Um, it, it, maybe it could be that. Who knows? We don't have any idea why he did it. Um, it was, was it externally a good act to do? Yes, indeed it was. And I wish more people would behave that way, would, would care for those that they, they disagree with, that would care with those who they argue with. And, you know, what's funny is this doctrine that all of us are broken, all of us are sinful, all of us are in need of salvation can actually be the key to lead us to that kind of altruism, that kind of caring for the other person. Because if we look at this and we say, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside, they've together all become worthless, no one does good, not even one. If we let that sink into our hearts, what that can show us is, I'm not better than that other person. I am not better than that skinhead. Um, I am not doing the evil that they're doing, but internally at, at the root, I share a similar problem with them. I'm having a similar issue with them. And so it can show us not that I'm morally superior to this person, but that that person needs what I've been given. And so let me share with that person. Let me see if I can treat that person with care and kindness, the way God has treated me, the way Jesus has treated me, so that I might be able to lead them to a better place. It, it can actually or rehumanize everybody because the current common human condition is this no one is righteous, no, not one, no one seeks for God. That is our common condition right now. And so um, if, if you're having a debate with somebody, a discussion with somebody, um, watch how things play out. Because if you assume me and this person, we disagree, and I may think that they are fundamentally, essentially at their root wrong, but I can still say, but they're a sinner in need of grace the way I am. They're, they're just seeing things differently. And maybe I'm wrong here, but I don't think so. I think they're wrong. If their approach is, well, you believe that because you're evil, that shows you that the problem is where the problem is, is they've assumed I'm righteous. I'm not, I'm not the one who is bad. You disagree with me. You must be bad. And, and that dehumanizes the opposition. Um, Godwin's law is, is a, kind of a joke on the internet. And uh, Godwin, Godwin's law says that the longer a discussion goes on on the internet, the higher the probability someone will refer to the other person as a Nazi. Um, you know, because Nazis now are the ultimate evil in our sight. Uh, that, that, that kind of thing happens when we dehumanize the other person, when they become, instead of a human being that we disagree with, they become um, an object or, or a, a statement that we don't agree with. And so this doctrine of what is called total depravity um, can really actually serve to rehumanize the human race because it puts us all in the same boat. Um, total depravity in technical terms means there is no part of the human being that hasn't been tainted, conditioned, broken by sin. And, and we saw that at the beginning. We saw that in chapter one where they refuse to see God. And since they refuse to see God as he's revealed himself in nature, their thoughts become darkened or futile, their hearts become darkened, and their practice becomes wicked. That is what we mean by, by total depravity. Their thoughts are futile. So our, our brain, our mind, our sense of reasoning, our, our ability to rationally interpret and understand the universe around us is now broken. It's futile. It's, it's, it's unable to get anywhere. That's why our scientific process is not a bunch of scientists look at something and go, yeah, well, we agree on that. 
it's a bunch of scientists get together and go, well, I think it's this. And another one says, no, I don't think so. I think it's this. And another one says, I think you're both wrong. And then another one comes in and says, no, the first guy's right. And they work through it together. It's because our minds have been corrupted by sin. We can't see as clearly as we think we can. In our hearts, our, 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 our hearts are darkened. Our foolish hearts are darkened. That means that our desires are broken. We talked about that, upside down desires. They're disordered. They're in different ways. Our will is now bent. Um, our, our feelings are not trustworthy. They're, they're leading us in, in strange ways. And so where does that result? The, the way it falls out is our actions are corrupt. What we do since those other pieces of us are, are corrupt. So all of us, every aspect of the human nature has been affected by sin of all people. Everyone. So when, when we say total depravity, we mean total everyone in every aspect of their being. What we don't mean is everything they ever do is evil all the time. Um, people can do things that are actually meritorious, or not meritorious, but are good, externally good. Um, we're not as evil as we can be at all times. Thank God, or we'd be back in, in uh, Genesis chapter 9, before the flood, when God said, they are horrible, they're going to kill each other. Um, uh, Noah's the only good person. It's God's grace to us that we are not acting on, on those desires and impulses and broken thoughts as much as we do. But we all have them. We're all in that same camp. So the problem is the trajectory again. Uh, all have turned aside. No one seeks after God. They've turned away. They've started worshiping images in the, man, uh, images in the form of man and creeping things and, and birds and animals. Um, they've started worshiping themselves. And they're not seeking God. They're seeking themselves. What do I get out of this? And, and the, the startling thing is this problem is so built in, it is so deep-seated in us that its roots reach to the very fabric of who we are. We could be very religious and still not seek after God. The thing is, what we could be looking for is not God, but the benefits of being godly. Um, I, I don't really mind God so much. He's kind of okay, whatever. Um, but I, I expect certain things from him because I'm doing, look at how good I am. Isn't that the Pharisees? Isn't that what the Pharisees did? Look, Lord, I, I tithe of my mint and cumin. I, I am scrupulous about prayer and everything. I'm so grateful that I'm not like that Pharisee or that tax collector over there. Um, did he care about God? The, the tax collector did because he, he looked at God and he said, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. I have offended you. The Pharisee says, Lord, you owe me because I'm not like him. So that's the problem is this no one seeks after God. The trajectory is bent. It is turned in the wrong way. We, the steps we take could be going in a positive direction, looking very godly. But the problem is our desire is not for more of God. And that's where our problem is. So the second half, their throat is an open grave. Their tongues, uh, um, uh, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood in the paths of ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And, and that's the common human condition right now. It's not built in. It's not a part of the human being. It is the corruption of human nature since the fall. But that's the problem is we behave in those ways because our trajectory is wrong, because our heart, our will, our emotions, our desires, all of those things have been corrupted by sin. So let's go back to Paul's original question. Um, who needs to be saved? The power, the, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for who? For 
the moralist, for the Jew. No, it's for everyone. Everyone needs to be saved. We have to be. We must be saved because our trajectory is bent. So do we do good? Do we drive that nail in the wall and just perfectly line that baby up and, and the head is flush with the wood? And yeah, occasionally we do that. But we do it so that we can put our initials over it and say, I did that. Look what I did. Look at how great I am. It, it's, if that sounds odd to you, if it feels kind of like, why on earth is that bad? That's because this is the soup we live in is as we ha are so used to ourselves and everyone around us being self-seeking in these things that that's just the way it comes out. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There, there just isn't. So that's the problem. That's the universality of sin. And so now we come to this last part. And actually, it sounds like bad news, but I want to point to the fact that there is hope of deliverance in this. So he finishes the section, 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. This is another one of those instances, what I, I mentioned earlier, where the word law is complicated in, in um, Romans. The way Paul uses law is a little bit complicated. So let's take this apart. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Doesn't that sound like the Jews? They have been given the law, Mosaic, the Mosaic Covenant, it contains law. So the law, whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. And that's why I think when we look at the, the quotes that Paul gave us beforehand, he is got in mind what he had said about the Gentiles, but he's also applying, applying it to the Jews. So the Jews could look at that and say, yeah, those lousy Gentiles, look at that. None of them's righteous. None of them seek God. They've all turned aside. Um, you could say those kind of things, but instead... What Paul says is, but what the law says, it says to those who are under the law. And so those who have received these oracles of God, this is message for you too. This is for you. So it sounds like it's the Mosaic law. And then he says, so that every mouth may be stopped. Okay, so the Jews will be quiet. And the whole world may be accountable to God. So this law is speaking and it is making the whole world accountable, not just the Jews, but the whole world are accountable to God. And really, this is what Paul had been saying from the beginning is, is there is a function, there is a work of the law that is applied to the human heart so that our consciences either accuse or excuse us as we bump into, as we cross the line between right and wrong, as we do good things and do bad things. So when he comes here, he starts talking about the Jews, he's quoting from scripture, but then he applies it universally. We know what the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that the whole world may be accountable to God. So the advantage to the Jew is they've been given the clearest accounting of this law. They have been given the, the, the strongest presentation of this law, and yet they don't live up to it. But this law is an expansion on the law that's written into the heart, that's the, the work of the law that's on the heart of all people. And so they're under law too. And so that's our problem. That is the problem of the sin that we saw. None is righteous. And then we come to this problem of, well, what about the law? Shouldn't that corral us into being good people? No, it doesn't. It, it makes everybody accountable because they've heard that, because they know they're doing right and wrong. So verse 20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. All that law can do for you is say, 
you're a sinner. All law can do for you is say, this is what you ought to do, and you're not doing it. All the law can do for you is remind you of your condemnation. That's nothing wrong with the law. That is not because the law is deficient or, or malfunctioning or anything. It, the law is a reflection of God's morality, and God's morality is morality. What it is, is it shows a defect in us because we can't comply with it. We can't fulfill what it's demanding. Therefore, all we know from it is sin. And Paul will unpack this idea some more there. So where's the hope in this? Where is this, this hope of deliverance come from? Well, go back to the beginning of verse 20. He says, for by the works of the law, no human may be justified in his sight. So justified is that legal term that's saying someone is not held accountable. Um, it doesn't mean you had a good reason for doing that. It simply is a legal term saying you're not held accountable. So how can we be held not accountable in his sight? Well, by the works of the law, no human being can. But maybe apart from the works of the law, there is a way to be justified. And that's the hope that we have here is as we look to law, as we look to rules, as we look to the oracles of God, and we see again and again, this is what you should do. This is what you should do. This is what you should do. And again and again, our hearts are panged by the idea that we're not doing that. What, we can, what we're intended to do is say, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. That, I, I can't get there from here. So again, what was the, his message from the beginning, 116? The gospel is the power of God for salvation, and now we know we all need salvation to everyone, not just Jews, not just Gentiles, not just moralists, not to amoralists, but to everyone who believes. And so that justification can come to us. And as a matter of fact, that's what he's going to say in the very next verse. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from law, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. He goes back and he picks that up. So we'll get there. And so what he ends with on um, this, this summary statement of how everyone must be saved, even the people who do good, even the people who do bad, they all must be saved. It is not based on works. That's the point. We are not justified by works. We are not justified by good deeds. This is the problem. These good deeds that we do, they can't do what we think they're going to do. If I do this nice thing, then, then that will endear me to God. That will make me better with God. But just that impulse to, I want something out of this. I want to be right with God. I intend to manipulate God into liking me and doing what I want because I've done this good thing from him. There is no one seeking after God, all turning aside. That, that is, the trajectory is bent away. So the, the point here can feel almost hopeless. Uh, I can remember reading this as a young Christian and just feeling like, well, then what's the point? I mean, if, if I can't do these things, then what's the point? If, if everything is tainted, then what's the point? Well, uh, young Tim, keep reading. And we'll get there. We're, we're going to start now. In the next section, we'll talk about, well, how can we be righteous with God? If it's not by obeying the law, if it's not by being good enough, if it's not doing all of these right and good things, then how is it? Well, it is through faith in Jesus Christ, and that's the good news. And we get a hint of it now. So what I want to say in summary here is do good things. That, that's a good thing. It is, it is a good thing for you to care for your neighbor. It's a good thing for you to, um, to fight for justice in this world, for want people to be righteous 
for our government to behave in, in positive and good ways to all people, the promise that we've been given of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We should want that extended to all citizens. Those are good things. Do those things. Don't trust those things. By the works of the law shall no man be justified. So it, it's not a dichotomy. It's not a, um, a contradiction to say, you should be doing X, Y, and Z, but by doing X, Y, and Z, you should not be trusting in X, Y, and Z. That, that is not a contradiction. That's wisdom. That is um, those who are fearing God and looking towards him. That's the point of it. So go out and do good, but don't trust it. Go out and do right, but don't put your hope in it. Because that is what good deeds can do, is they can only do so much. And they can't carry the day in, in the judgment at the end. So that's, that's where we go next, is this, how does our good, good deeds, how do they become genuine good deeds, better good deeds, or good deeds that, that God would not be ashamed of, or that we shouldn't be ashamed of? How, how do we get there? How are we right with God? We'll get there next week. So with that, let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, I, I just I pray for us. Um, this is such a subtle distinction between doing good works and not trusting good works, between loving justice and loving mercy and walking with our God and not putting our hope of our relationship in those things, but seeing them as the fruit of that relationship. So Lord, thank you for reminding us of our sin in this passage, and thank you for the glimmer of hope that we have um, in the fact that there is a possibility of justification. There is a possibility that we will not be held accountable in that judicial um, legal sense, but we will be declared innocent. And so, Lord, would you show us that next week? Lead us into the power, your power for salvation. And we ask this all in Christ's precious name. Amen.